0: Welcome to Speaking of Travel with Marilyn Ball. Sit back and be carried away to places around the world and right here in our own backyard. No passport required.
1: Welcome to Speaking of Travel. I'm your host, Marilyn Ball, and you're listening right here on News Radio 570 WWNC 880 and 92.9, The Revolution. Speaking of travel is brought to you by the Asheville Regional Airport. We've got five airlines, 11 nonstop destinations connecting you anywhere you want to go. And by Appalachian Realty, they've been helping Asheville since 1979. You can find your Best home ever. And remember, go to speakingoftravel.net and join the Speaking of Travel Travel Club. There's lots in store when you're part of the Travel Club. That's speakingoftravel.net. And remember, you can listen to Speaking of Travel anywhere, anytime in the whole wide world on your free iHeartRadio app. Well, I recently read Elizabeth Gilbert's book called Big Magic. It was a great book, and my takeaway from the book is if you want to live a creative life, you need to follow your curiosity. And I was so glad to have this affirmed because I love doing this, which is probably why I love to travel. You know, when I was a little girl, my parents took me on these road trips, and my dad would look for ways to create fun adventures so we could learn something new and interesting, and I loved those side trips. Well, my guest today loves to travel and has a restless curiosity for the unknown, like remote deserts, obscure cultures, the mysteries of science and technology. George Steinmetz is certainly known for his exploration photography. He's completed more than 40 major photo essays for National Geographic. And like 25 stories for Geo Magazine in Germany. And his current passion is taking pictures of the world's deserts while piloting a motorized paraglider. George, welcome to the show. It is so great to have you here today.
2: Thank you. I'm glad to be there.
1: So, George, I just saw you on a TEDx talk about your your years of field work in Africa, and I was so mesmerized. It was it was just really strong and awesome. And you know, it gave me a sense of here's somebody who just loves life, loves doing new things, curious about life, and loves adventures. How did that all start? What's your background?
2: Um, well, I was, uh, I was a college student. I was at, um, at Stanford University, and I was studying geophysics, and I, I got kind of restless. And I, um, I was on a, a summer travel in Europe and, and up in Morocco, and I bumped into a guy who had hitchhiked, who had actually ridden a motorcycle across, uh, across the Sahara. And it just opened my eyes up to the possibility of traveling independently in a place like Africa. And so I, um, I stopped out of Stanford for a year, and went hitchhiking with a you know with a backpack across Africa, and I brought a camera, and uh, I fell in love with taking pictures.
1: So, what kind of camera did you have? I'm just curious.
2: Well, I borrowed my brother's old um, Konica, like it's a film camera. This is you know back in 1979, and it it, it broke, and then I borrowed a. A camera from a, a, friend, a college friend of mine who would travel with me to, to Tunisia, and he let me take it with me uh, across the sand. So it was an Olympus OM-1.
1: Oh, that's perfect. Right. When I was growing up, my, my dad gifted me this little brownie camera when I was a kid, and that was just so much fun, taking pictures. And, you know, when you're, when you're just starting out. Now, was that the first time you had really gotten into photography?
2: Yeah, I didn't really know what the hell I was doing. And, um, for me, the, the camera, I, I, did, I, I started taking pictures, and then the camera became um, kind of an excuse to explore things and to push myself. And I thought, Oh, well, it would be interesting if I could you know, get a picture of, of let's say, you know, this or that. And I, I became intrigued with traditional cultures in, in Africa. Um, and so I started trying to find the the pockets of traditional culture that were relatively unchanged.
1: So, when you were growing up, when you were a kid, did your did your parents travel? Did you travel when you were when you were a kid?
2: Uh, a little bit. I went to Europe with my with my dad, and uh, I was uh, in high school. I was an exchange student uh, for uh, I don't know, like a month and a half in Japan. I couldn't speak Japanese, but I was able to. Get around in the Tokyo subways, and I discovered that you could, as a teenager, you could actually get beer out of their vending machines, which was very exciting.
1: I bet that was exciting. So, why did you choose Africa at that time when you were in college?
2: Um, well, it was the most um, it was the most different place I could think of. I wanted to go to a place that was not. Uh, when I got to Morocco, I, did, I, I realized I was in a culture that had no, didn't have a, a common basis with uh, the culture we have in the West. And I was fascinated by that, and I wanted to explore that more deeply.
1: So you, that year that you were hitchhiking, you must have met some incredible people. Were those people that... Uh I don't know, I don't want to say change your life, but certainly I know traveling, meeting other people in different cultures uh really strengthens uh your love for a place and it sounds like Africa is some place that you must have fallen in love with when you were there.
2: Well, it was it was kind of like graduate school for me. I mean, I I, I was I didn't have much money. I, I was living on like ten bucks a day, uh, which is why I was teaching. I just didn't have the, physically have the money for like an airplane or a, to pay for a ride. So, um, and you had to learn how to get along with just about everybody. Everybody from um, like the, the heads of aid agencies to uh, truck drivers to nuns to you know drug smugglers, the whole rick gamut, you're sitting by the side of the road and somebody stops and you jump in and you gotta you know you gotta schmooze them. And I had to learn uh, I had to learn uh, French and I learned a little Arabic and Swahili uh, from dictionaries I bought in the market.
1: So during that time when you were there, were you feeling that um, oh, I'm finding my passion, I'm finding my purpose, I, I'm falling in love with taking pictures. I really wanna do this more than anything even college uh
2: very much so i mean i i and I, I i thought it was just well i thought well this is this is really exciting and wonderful and um i, I wonder if it's possible for me to, to make a living at doing this and i didn't it's one. It's, it's really, i was 21 years old so it's a very awkward time when you're kind of between like a you know a kid and an adult and you're you're trying to find your way you don't really know if it's going to work out and so uh there was a lot of um uh, I think probably, to be honest, like a lot of, you know, curiosity and insecurity, like would it, would it work out for me? But I figured that, um, you know, I saw pictures in magazines that had been taken by somebody. So somebody had to make a living in doing that. So why not me?
1: So you went back to uh, college and finished it up?
2: Correct. I went back to Stanford and I got my, um, my degree in geophysics kind of as an insurance policy. But I was really infected with Africa by that point.
1: And, and um, it sounds like with photography as well.
2: That's right. I mean, it was it was the two. I mean, to me, it wasn't about taking pictures as much as the camera was a a tool or an excuse to go and explore the world, and and I really love that that process. Um, And as a photographer, you, you have to you have to spend time in a place. You can't just like hear about it. You have to go and see it for yourself and experience it, and wait for it to to you know manifest itself in front of you.
1: So, when you graduated from college, what was your next step?
2: Well, I went straight back to Africa. I got another. I, I, I got another uh, summer job from an oil company, and I was able to make a little more money. I, I saved up like I think from the second trip, I saved up ten thousand dollars.
1: That must have um, seemed like a lot of money at that time.
2: Well, you stretch it. I mean, I was really <laughs> it was embarrassingly cheap. I mean, I was riding on tops of trucks and sometimes sleeping under the trucks. And I, I had this kind of a routine I developed where I would uh, like they drop me off in a village. It, it does get up off the truck, and I would kind of walk around with my backpack, looking um, kind of uh, innocent and vulnerable. And somebody would know almost somebody would always take me in.
1: Oh. Well, well, you and, are then, definitely a, a schmoozer.
2: Stand around. I didn't really speak. I mean, you know, you're in an African village. They don't like. I don't speak Lingala, and so you know, somebody would eventually come up to you, spoke like you know, maybe the the town, you know, the the village uh, English teacher or French teacher would come up to you and offer you a place. In some places, the police would take me because they want me to get robbed.
1: Oh well, that was very nice, looking out for your safety.
2: Well, they didn't want to, you know, if I got robbed, they'd have a big headache to deal with. So it was kind of like, it was kind of job, it was kind of work reduction for them. It was easier for having me sleep on their porch than to fill out all the police forms, you know.
1: Well, I, I find that to be very brave for a young man to be off on his own. Very brave and also could be a little bit, um, I don't know, just a little crazy.
2: <laughs> Well, my, my mother was, my, it, it drove my mother nuts, and now I, I have kids of my own, I think, how I would react if, if they wanted to do a, a similar kind of thing. And it, it, it's, it's curious when the shoe's on the other foot. Um, but I think there's a real, um, there's a real power to uh, believing in yourself. And uh, there's thing that like 90% of life is showing up. And uh, you, you show up and, and it, you make things happen. Even now, I mean, working for the geographic and other publications, I I find that it's still, it hasn't really changed that much. I mean, um, a lot of what I've done is like you just kind of show up with your gear and you're polite to people and and you, you make things happen.
1: Well, George, thank you so much. We'll be back after the break.
3: Hi, this is Tina Kinsey with Asheville Regional Airport, and I've got a travel tip for you today. Have you been in a position where you need to travel back-to-back to to several different cities? Maybe you have a meeting in Chicago and then another meeting in Denver the next day. Of course, you want to fly from home to Chicago and then straight to your next meeting in Denver before flying home again. Instead of just purchasing a series of one-way tickets, check out the multi-city itinerary option when you book your trip. Choose this option rather than round-trip or one-way when booking. It's usually just a button at the top of the booking tool, no matter which tool you're using. Often, the price is similar to one round-trip ticket if there's just one additional leg to your journey, and booking is really simple.
1: office on Arlington Street right near downtown. Appalachian Realty, helping people call Asheville home since 1979.
4: Fly me to the moon. Let me play among the stars. And Let me see what spring is like on
1: be sure to visit SpeakingofTravel.net. You'll find past podcasts, photo gallery, musings, and so much more. And be sure to sign up for the Speaking of Travel Travel Club. Well, my guest today is George Steinmetz, and he is uh, – George, how would you even describe what you are? You're a photographer, but you're you're so much more –
2: <laughs> I'm a curious person. <laughs>
1: you are a curious person and we talked about curiosity and uh and this you know wonderlust it sounds like when you went when you finished college and you went back to Africa you were there what a couple of years after that
2: I spent, I think, my my Vagabond days, I spent like two and a half years hitchhiking around in Africa.
1: Vagabond. I love that. I mean, that just conjures up so many, um, I don't know, just a sense of freedom and uh, exploration and adventure. You must have been feeling pretty good at that point.
2: Uh, well, I, I mean, it was a good time. It was a lot of time waiting by the side of the road for a ride. I mean, you know, when you're checking, it can be kind of tedious, and, and you get to remote places, and sometimes you wait for like you know a day or two under a tree, and nobody comes along, and then you have to go back to the you know same people that put you up the night before and see if they'll give you another place to sleep.
1: It sounds like a great movie. I could see this, uh, you know, this character doing all of that. It's. Um... You must have been meeting some wonderful people, though, while you were there. Were you? I mean, people were taking you in and yeah. uh, feeding you. It sounds like. Yeah. You must have just so been an amazing.
2: It was like graduate school for me, and just you have to be able to uh, get along and empathize with the, the whole spectrum of humanity. And it gave me uh, a feeling for Africa on a very grassroots level, um, and, and you know everybody from. Like I said, like, you know, you run into like, you know, entrepreneurs who are very wealthy and then, um, you know, impoverished people who who have, you know, don't have a bed in their house.
1: So you were thinking that there has to be a way that you can make this life, turn this lifestyle into uh, a revenue source. How did how did that start to unfold for you?
2: Well, you have to deal with a lot of rejection. Um, and, I mean, you. you when I, at that time, nobody was really interested in Africa unless there was a, a, a coup or a famine. And um, I went and saw, when I came back, I, I, I uh, edited all my pictures, and I went and saw, uh, I weaseled my way into the office of the Director of Photography at National Geographic. And um, uh, this is a kind of legendary guy, Bob Gilke, who had this little sign in his door that said, Please wipe your knees before entering. <laughs> And um, I went and saw the guy, and I showed him my work, and he he uh, he buzzed through it. And it was, you know, it's like two and a half years of work, and he buzzed through it in, oh, it was probably like two minutes. He just, like, put it leaning on the advance button. And uh, it was quite intimidating. At one point, he, he stopped. He saw a picture he didn't like, and I was trying to explain what I was doing. And he said, um, Is that an excuse? And I said, Well, I, I guess so, sir. And he goes, Well, we publish photographs here, not excuses. And, um, and then he kept going, and he saw one picture he liked, and it was of me. I'd taken this picture on top of a of a train going across South Sudan, and I was riding on top of the train with, like, 10,000 other people. Um, and he asked me how long I'd been out in the field, and I said, I, I've been out in the field for, you know, two and a half years. And he said, we don't have many people who do that kind of thing. Um, come back when you know how to use artificial light. So that's what I did.
1: And how long was that?
2: Uh, I, I worked as an assistant for... Um, Probably a year and a half, two years in San Francisco, uh, uh, getting, you know, first you start taking out the trash for studio photographers and you start, you know, going and getting lunch and you, you, you get more and more, you know, you learn how the, the lighting technique works. And I came back and uh, I got my first assignment from uh, from them when I was 29 years old.
1: Wow. George, that is really a remarkable story, especially because, you know, if we, if we go back and listen to uh, when we first started our conversation and you were talking about National Geographic it, it it's almost like foreshadowing. You had this intention. Uh, you kind of set your mind on it, and over time, it it actually unfolded and came true.
2: It's true. I mean, I, when I was a, you know when I was running around as a as a vagabond, uh, I had these memories of uh, opening up the the pages of National Geographic and seeing people like you know in a hang glider over Patagonia or something, and I thought, wow, that wouldn't that be an amazing thing to do? So it really was uh, my dream to be able to go out and and explore the world like that.
1: And have you ever done hang gliding over Patagonia?
2: <laughs> um, not Patagonia. I've, um, I have I, I fly paragliders, which are a little different from hang gliders, uh, but I've been uh, in just about everything from, you know, like weird, you know, Russian helicopters to gyrocopters to, I don't know, any hot air balloons, whatever moves.
1: George, do you have any fear whatsoever?
3: <laughs>
2: um, I take, you know, I take calculated risks, and um, when you look at something from the outside, it can seem kind of dangerous, but it's a, it's a step-by-step uh, process, um, and it, it's, um, I mean, even with when I started paragliding, you, you, my first flight was on a, on a sand dune where I was flying uh, about the same parallel to the slopes. I was only like, you know, a couple feet above the ground, so if I messed up, um, I would just be a tumble in the sand, and then you go on to steeper and steeper things, and then after a month, you're running off 1,000-foot cliffs, but it, it, it's a progressive process. So you know what you're doing
1: well it sounds like that's how your life has progressed overall is step-by-step process process well, one thing
2: that i learned in africa is you don't you, you know you talk to somebody about something like an idea you have and they say some people say oh that's crazy it's too dangerous but you ask them if they've actually done it and what you want to do is talk to the person who's actually done something to see if it's reasonable um and that's what i did like with paragliding i found people who actually were paragliding they said well it's It's reasonable if you only do it early in the morning and late in the day when the air is really calm. Um, So that's what I did.
1: So, what made you even think that parasailing would be something that you wanted to do?
2: Well, I um, when I was a hitchhiker, I I went across. I hitchhiked across the Sahara to get to to Black Africa. I went across uh, the Algerian Sahara in Niger, and um, I was. I was riding on the tops of trucks, and I had this, you know, fantasy, like, wouldn't it be amazing if I could soar over this landscape like a bird? And I was particularly, from my geology background, I was particularly interested in, in the Sahara because the deserts are like, um, the geology is just so raw out there. It's like it's like the earth was living skin peeled away. And so I thought I, I, that, that, I, that, that I did explore that place, and they really stuck with me. And so I proposed it um, a story on the central Sahara to the geographic uh, when I was about oh, about 39, and um and they approved the idea, and then the pilot I had lined up flaked out on me. And so I had to find a way to do it without, you know, I had to basically do it myself.
1: And that's when you started your paragliding across Africa?
2: Yeah. I didn't tell the Geographic anything about it. I thought they would, if I told them that the pilot had punked out, I thought they would cancel the assignment. So I started, I, started, I scraped around, I started taking lessons. And, um, and then I went and explained to the Geographic that I had this new way of flying that I thought would be even better than the plane and, um, and it would probably be cheaper for me to actually buy the paraglider than to hire a plane. And so they agreed, and I went to Europe, and I bought all my gear and was in Africa three weeks later.
1: Wow. And you put, you put that all together yourself, the equipment, yeah. putting the paraglider together?
2: Yeah, I had to find – I mean, I was really worried about safety. So I found um, a guy who would go with me as a mentor. And we went and bought identical gears. We had a backup system, and he helped me with takeoff and landing and safety and whatnot. And um, I, I was actually I was kind of surprised when I finished the trip, and I wasn't all, you know, I didn't, like, break a leg or worse. Um, but I thought I, I survived, and I saw of these amazing pictures, and I wanted to go out and do more.
1: And those pictures really are glorious. Tell us how we can check out some of your work, George.
2: Um, well, you can see, I did, um, uh, I was in uh, Tanzania in September. I gave a TED Talk there, which you can now find online. Um just search for my name, George Steinmetz under uh TED Talks. Or you can also follow me on Instagram at um my Instagram account is Geo like G E O Geo G-O Steinmetz.
1: Well George, thank you so much. It's it's just so exciting to talk to you about um this progression that you've made throughout your life. You know, you, you getting on a paraglider, I, you know, I, I've seen pictures. It's like you're sitting in a chair.
2: Well, not even. It's more of a harness, and you're, you're hanging underneath the, the, the wing. The wing is it looks like a parachute.
1: And how long do you go at one stretch?
2: Well, you, you, you run to take off and land. There's no wheels. There's no fuselage. And uh, you can fly for uh, typically it's an hour and a half to two hours, um, and you fly at 30 miles an hour. Uh, the maximum I've ever gained was about a mile. I gained about five or 6,000 feet on one flight. Um, but it's not... The, the the paraglider is really most interesting um, between like a hundred and five hundred feet, where you can you're flying slow, but you see the world three dimensionally. It's kind of like um, it's kind of a helicopter, but it's it's quieter and it's a lot cheaper.
1: Oh, I'm sure the quiet must be absolutely fabulous, and your photos are just so beautiful, George. Thank you. We'll be back in just a minute. office on Arlington Street, right near downtown. Appalachian Realty, helping people call Asheville home since 1979.
0: As newcomers flocked to Asheville over the last 50 years, they joined with locals to breathe new energy into the city. Marilyn Ball traces the bonds of community that give rise to Asheville today in her book, The Rise of Asheville, an exceptional history of community building. It's available at Malaprops, Barnes & Noble, Loft on Broadway, and Amazon.com. With 50 flights every day to and from cities like Atlanta, Charlotte, and Chicago, you can fly to hundreds of worldwide destinations with one easy connection. Choose Allegiant, American, Delta, or United right here from Asheville Regional Airport. And when you fly home, you're home. Asheville Regional Airport, take the easy way out.
4: Fly me to the moon. Let me play among the stars. Let me see what spring is like on... I'm
1: excited to bring back Doc Lawrence, my good pal who's a veteran journalist, published author, TV producer, and an enthusiastic wine commentator out on the Gourmet Highway. Hey Doc, how you doing today?
5: Hello Marilyn, guess where I am? New Orleans, the Big Easy. Listen, this is Mardi Gras and this is the 2018 tricentennial celebration of the city of New Orleans. This wonderful city is 300 years old. Think about that and all the fun we're going to have. My first stop was checking in at the Montelion Hotel in the French Quarter, one of the favorite places in America for people visiting this country or for locals like me. Smack dab in the heart of the French Quarter. I started the day off, of course, at the Café de Monde with French coffee and beignets. Talk about delicious fun, right by the banks of the Mississippi. Then it was time to go over to Jackson Square, say hello to General Jackson on his mighty horse, stop in the Cathedral of St. Louis, go to the Cabildo, the old ancient capital of Louisiana, where the Louisiana Purchase was signed by emissaries of Jefferson and Napoleon, and then a few hours at the bookstore, the Faulkner bookstore, right, right beside it, which is a ton of fun. If you like old books and you like good people, uh, after the Faulkner bookstore, it's anything goes. I think I'm going to have my fortune read. Why not? I can do that on Royal street right before lunch at Brennan's. Brennan's is one of the oldest restaurants in North America and Bananas Foster was invented there and heaven knows what else. They tell me they have the oldest wine cellar and the largest wine cellar on premises in North America. Who am I to argue? This is the global gourmet center of America. Uh, New York has got its own culture. San Francisco does, I know. But this place is older. They've been doing it long. And uh, you can have a good time here if you set your mind to it. Dinner tonight is with the fabulous Tim McNally, the founder, the mainstay of the New Orleans Wine and Food Experience, and my dear friend. We're going to do Commander's Palace, where none other than Emerald got his start. If you want to get the spirit of New Orleans, you've got to go by the library yourself at home and get a copy of the Pulitzer Prize winning book, A Confederacy of Dunces. You'll laugh out loud, and you'll start to miss this wonderful place, whether you've been here or not. Marilyn, that's about all for now, and I've got an appointment at Barrister's, the art gallery, over in the, the, the warehouse district to look at some of the greatest folk art in North America, and uh, maybe pick, pick me up a voodoo doll while I'm there. Who knows? Get some good luck if I rub its head real hard. That's going to be all for now from the Big Easy for New Orleans. This is Doc Lawrence on the Gourmet Highway for speaking of travel at Marilyn Ball.
1: Thanks, Doc, and good luck to you. Can't wait to find out where you're going to be next time on the Gourmet Highway. My guest today is George Steinmetz. He's an exploration photographer. He's been working with National Geographic. We are talking about parasailing and, and, and the quiet, George. You know, I was thinking about how quiet it must be when you're up there above the earth like that. What does that feel like for you?
2: Um... It's kind of like a the, my aircraft. It's kind of like a flying lawn chair from my perspective. I mean, I don't really look up at the wing and the motors behind me. So it's just you're you're just kind of buzzing around through space at 30 miles an hour, and there's nothing between you and attorney. I mean, you drop a lens cap and it's gone. I mean, it's just you're just hanging.
1: So do you? Um, I don't know. It just sounds so magical, like you're on a. a- magic carpet ride over Africa, and looking at your photos and listening to your TEDx talk and and seeing that exploration, the earth just, like you said, it's um, it's just so amazing. I was just fascinated with the desert and the uh, ebbs and flows of the sand, and your heart must be just beating so fast when you're up there like that.
2: Well, it is, a, it is a little hectic because I'm piloting and taking pictures at the same time, and um, so it's very. When you're flying, it's very. Um, it's a very intense experience, and you're, you know, you're thinking about flying and thinking about where, where do you, the motors are not that reliable. So you always have to keep in mind where you'll make an emergency landing in case things go bad, um, and then you're trying to evaluate the pictures and you know think about where you want to go. And it's uh, you're juggling a lot of balls, but it's. It is. It's it's a beautiful way to fly.
1: And how long did it? How long did you go all over Africa over these years with the paragliding?
2: Um, well, not every country, but I mean, uh, north to south, east to west. I've flown in you know every country in North Africa and. South Africa, the, the West Africa, yeah, pretty much all over. I mean, it's um, it's a big place, but in um, my process, is very slow. I only fly at thirty miles an hour, and I can fly for an hour and a half. So I generally would go to one country at a time and go there for uh, a few weeks.
1: So it sounds like you're you're kind of morphing now too from the paragliding. You did that for a long time, and technology is changing. What what are you doing now that is? Um, more your current passion, let's say.
2: Well, I still have the paragliding equipment, but um, I, um, I've been using uh, drones more lately. And I found they've opened up uh, new possibilities of seeing. Just like, you know, when I started paragliding uh, 20 years ago, it offered me a new uh, way to see, which is very exciting. And I'm finding that there are things I could do now with the drone that I um, couldn't do with the paraglider. And so I've been doing that a lot. And I've been working on a new project now about food. I've been looking at the uh, the global food supply. And so with the drones, I can fly, you know, inside a, a Chinese dumpling factory um, and get pictures in there, which is, I'm finding that maybe it's not Africa, but I find it quite interesting.
1: And how do you even come up with these ideas?
2: Um, well, it's kind of, um, uh, it, there's a bit of a happenstance I and mean, you knock around and you, you find out what strikes your curiosity. It's kind of like, you know, wandering through a bookstore and what pops out at you and uh, my interest in food um, came about when I uh, was asked to do a, a story about um, how we're going to meet the uh, growing food demands of humanity, and I started uh, documenting large-scale agriculture, and I found it fascinating.
1: So that was a transition, f- seeing the agriculture of the world, as it were, and then connecting it to food and, and now looking at um, how food is created – I mean, all of these ideas are floating around in your head. How do you decide where to go next?
2: Well, the the food project was something that Geographic asked me to do, and I, I I, I just when I started getting into it, I realized there was a a lot to do that hadn't really been done very, a a lot to see that hadn't been visualized very well. I became fascinated by the the patterns, for example, of agriculture. Quite interesting. And there, um, there are a lot of land use issues, like I was down in, um, in Brazil looking at areas of the Amazon that are being cleared for planting corn and soybeans. And you want to understand the scale of that. Um, you have to see it from above. Um, so I went down there with my paraglider, and now uh, a lot of that work I've been doing with the drone because it, it gives me... Um, It's a lot easier to transport, and um, it gives me a lot more kind of positional control.
1: And did you have to be trained? How how does that work with the drone?
2: Well, it's kind of with paragliding. There's no license uh, available in the United States. Um, you just kind of you just kind of go. Um, and when I started uh, with drones, it was that way. And then uh, the FAA has been increasingly trying to uh, to regulate the drone industry, um, which is very, very complicated for them to do. Um, but I, I know I have, a, I have a commercial drone pilot's license. Wow. So um, and, but I operate in a lot of countries where nobody like uh, I've uh, recently I have a story in the current issue, National Geographic, about China's food supply. And a lot of flying in China. But in China, you don't really need to have a license.
1: So you just go in, you, you fly your drone, and I bet, I bet there are people who've never even seen a drone before.
2: Um, well, actually, the drones I'm flying are Chinese-made. Oh. Um, and the Chinese are actually pretty chill about drones. I've, um, in, in America, people think you're, you're spying on their backyard or you're trying to look for, you know, dead cows in their feedlot or something, and they get kind of edgy. Uh, but in China, I, didn't really, um, I never really had any issues that way.
1: Wow. Well, George, thanks. We'll be back break. on Arlington Street, right near downtown. Appalachian Realty, helping people call Asheville home since 1979. Blue Ridge Motorcycling Magazine is a quarterly guide to the best rides and most interesting riders. Available in newsstands and at BlueRidgeMotorcyclingMagazine.com.
4: Fly me to the moon, let me play among the stars. Let me see what spring is like on a Jupiter.
1: This is Marilyn Ball. You're listening to Speaking of Travel, words. brought to you by the Asheville Regional Airport and Appalachian Realty. My guest today is George Steinmetz. He's certainly known for his exploration photography and and so much more. And we're talking to him about uh, just life out, out in the world there, George. You know, listening to your... Um, your journey uh you've you've been through a lot of uh different technologies you know it's like i worked in advertising for many years starting back in the day when it was just a cut and paste industry and had to go into computers and you know different softwares different ways of of doing the work how has that impacted you over all these years starting out with your little uh Camera when you were in college to to now working with these high tech drones, how does that feel for you?
2: Well, to me, it's really the same game. It, it's it's about uh, it, it's about telling stories and, and uh, visualizing uh, aspects of our world in, in new ways, showing people something they haven't seen before, and uh, you always use the the best technology available. And, and um, so, for me, I mean. Uh, when I discovered paragliding, that was something that nobody else was doing, and I could see the desert environments in a totally different way. And so I, I ran with that. I did that for 15 years. I went to every, every desert in the world. I went to 27 countries plus Antarctica. Um, and uh, I did that, and I had a great time. I was trying to do something new, and uh, I ended up doing, a, uh, doing a, a helicopter shoot over New York, and I was fascinated by seeing New York City from above. And so my fourth book was about New York City from, from the air, uh, which I did a couple of years ago. Um, and then drones came along and they've opened up a new way of seeing for me and I'm exploring different things with that.
1: It's amazing. You, you've been to so many countries. You've traveled to some remote areas where nobody has ever gone. You know, I remember being a kid and looking through National Geographic magazines also at, um, you know, places that that just seem so far away and so exotic and Dreaming, you know. I, I think so many people um, they look at these photos and they they just dream of what it must be like. And and there you are, actually being that person taking those photos. It seems like a dream come true. Do, do you sometimes have to pinch yourself that you're living this life?
2: Well, it, it's a good gig. But- Easy, um, and uh, I mean it's the, the 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 business has changed now with the demise of of, of print publications, and now the opening up of social media, um, and so I, there are new now there are new opportunities to to reach people in in, in their pocket. Um, so it's still a very exciting time, but um, it's really all about about storytelling and showing people something they haven't seen before.
1: Well. I'm wondering, George, in that storytelling, as you're out there meeting people from all over the world, um, experiencing other cultures, tasting different foods, and given the the world that we know today, just the fact that you're uh, you're looking at food and and studying food and documenting food do you do you have hope? do you feel that as you're going out there and seeing the reality of uh, of the earth and the planet and the people, do you, do you have a sense of hope?
2: Yes, I do. I mean, the, the creativity of humanity is really unlimited and, uh, I mean, we face, we face many, many crises and, uh, there, there we found solutions and, um, and just like for me, like with, I, I found that what the, my techniques have advanced and, and, uh, our ways of living off the earth have advanced. And uh, we've been humanity's been scratching the earth for food for uh, over eleven thousand years, and we keep finding new ways to get more and more productivity out of the land.
1: And you're out there actually being able to witness that and see that for yourself. So, what's on the horizon for you, George? You know, you mentioned that you have kids yourself. Um, is it is it different now traveling for you, getting away, and then and then feeling a, a you know that you've got a
2: home. Well, I've got a, a wonderful wife who who lets me have a, a quasi-normal uh, family life, um, and, and so I'm gone about a third of the year. Um, but um, and now I, I have the pleasure of taking my my kids out to the field with me and let them understand uh, what I do and what the world is see worlds beyond suburbia, and uh, it, it's wonderful to, to see their reaction to those those kind of environments.
1: It is such a wonderful thing when I you know when I talk to people and. They talk about taking their children. That's why I always like to ask people, you know, did you travel when you were a kid? Because sometimes just uh, the impact of getting in the back seat in the old station wagon with mom and dad and the siblings and driving somewhere like grandma's house uh, made a huge impact in in the journey that was ahead, seeing something different, even if it was just in the next town. So that's a gift that, that we all, as parents, can give to our children and see that impact. So what about – I want to get back to um, how we can see your photos and, and listen to that TED Talk. I just – I was mesmerized with you standing up there and, and showing your photos and talking about your journey. How can people get um, get tuned into that, George?
2: Well, I mean, the TED Talk is a good teaser to me. Um, I, I, I'm an old-school guy. I find it most immersive when you look at a book and you can actually – Spend time luxuriating in in, in looking at at, uh, at pictures and and reading the stories behind them, and to me, that's the most uh, satisfying way to enjoy great photography.
1: And you've got these books. How can people order them? Can they go online? Is are they they're out there in bookstores?
2: Yeah, I mean, I you know, I offer autograph copies off my website, but you can get them from Amazon and, and most major bookstores. Um, And uh, if you want to see, probably the easiest place to be, you go to Amazon and type in my name and you'd see my my four books online there.
1: That sounds great. I highly recommend that. So, George, what have you got coming up besides the food? What else is happening in your world?
2: Well, I'm working on um, the food projects. Take me all over the world, and it's kind of uh, it's quite complicated. Cause everybody eats, and I'm looking at trying to do, to try to you know hustle to be at different you know harvestings and flowerings and production points around the world. And uh, I just started a new project about uh, global fisheries, and I want to look at uh, the challenge of uh, of trying to extract uh, protein from the sea sustainably.
1: Well, I'll tell you, George, it sounds to me that in your lifetime you're never going to be at a loss for anything to do.
2: So <laughs> much <laughs> more to do than you have time. I'll tell sure. you.
1: So, how do you how do you uh how do you set your priorities? Like, you know, there's so much to see and so much to do. Uh how do you kind of set those priorities of I'm going to do this now and then I'm going to go do that next?
2: Well, that's actually that's a really good question because it, 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 it's a, it's an ongoing challenge. And, and uh, I learned that you you have to focus on one thing at a time if you to get anything done. I mean, it's pretty, it's really basic, but it just sometimes something really tantalizing comes up, and you think, oh, that would be really interesting. And you say, no, no, it's better for me to stay on point or stay on message. And so I've learned that's one of the things I like about working on on book projects is you. You say, oh, "I am just going to do this thing," and I do one thing. It, means, it has a lot more meaning if you do one thing really well than if you you, you scatter yourself around. Um, it's kind of like you know marriage versus dating. In, in the long run, uh, marriage becomes a lot more meaningful.
1: Well, I think that's good advice and and good counsel for for anybody in any part of their life is being able to take it one step at a time, do something well, not get too scattered, and and focus. So, George. Give us a little bit of advice on, on why seeing the rest of the world, even if it's just traveling in your own backyard, is a, is a good idea.
2: Well, I, I, think, I think it's really important people understand how interconnected the world is. And, and uh, it's so easy for us to get you know, lost in our own little burrow and minutia. And when you get out and you, you, you see the world and you can share that with other people, um, I, I think it, um, it, it, it makes us more responsible citizens. And it enriches our lives tremendously. Um, Exactly.
1: Yeah.
2: Well, George, um, I...
1: Oh, go ahead. No, and
2: I I personally, I don't really... To me, I don't really like tourism. What I really enjoy is travel and getting to be in contact with the local people in the local environment. And kind of, um, you know, getting out of the car and meeting people is really what's most rewarding.
1: And it sounds like you have been rewarded many times over with... The fortune of being able to to travel and uh, you know taking these photos and and documenting for us uh, what's out there in the big wide world is uh, is truly a gift and I want to thank you personally for being out there doing that showing up it's it's awesome.
2: Thank you. It's my pleasure.
1: Well, George, thank you so much for being on the show today. I look forward to um, catching up with you again and uh, following you and and being able to see what you're doing and just be a part of your world because it's a big world out there.
2: Thank you, Marilyn. It's my pleasure talking to you.
1: You bet. Well, this is Marilyn Ball. You've been listening to Speaking of Travel. You know, Listen to what George was saying. Get out there, try something new, take your time, you know, take some deep breaths, follow one step at a time, but start planning, you know, start dreaming. Take a look at George's photos and imagine yourself there. And remember, as you go out during the week, pay attention, look around, dream big, and don't postpone joy.